section forty nine of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly Crake chapter four part twenty five shakespeare's minor poems in the long list of the minor names of the elizabethan poetry appears the bright name of william shakespeare shakespeare published his venus and adonis in fifteen ninety three and his tarquin and lucrece in fifteen ninety four his passionate pilgrim did not appear till fifteen ninety nine the sonnets not till sixteen o nine it is probable however that the first mentioned of these pieces which in his dedication of it to the earl of southampton he calls the first air of his invention was written some years before its publication and although the tarquin and lucrece may have been published immediately after it was composed it too may be accounted an early production we have no positive evidence that any wholly original drama such as would be considered a work of invention had yet been produced by shakespeare and notwithstanding the force of some of the reasons which have been lately urged for carrying back some of his original plays to a date preceding the year fifteen ninety three we are still inclined to think it probable that all the other poetry we have of shakespeare's was composed at least before he had fairly given himself up to dramatic poetry or had done anything in that line to which he could properly set his name or by which he could hope that he would live and be remembered among the poets of his country but although this minor poetry of shakespeare sounds throughout like the utterance of that spirit of highest invention and sweetest song before it had found its proper theme much is here also immature as it may be that is still all shakespearean the vivid conception the inexhaustible fertility and richness of thought and imagery the glowing passion the gentleness with all that is ever of the poetry as it was of the man the enamoured sense of beauty the living words the ear delighting and heart enthralling music nay even the dramatic instinct itself and the idea at least if not always the realization of that sentiment of all subordinating and consummating art of which his dramas are the most wonderful exemplification in literature resuming now the history of that dramatic poetry which is the chief glory of the elizabethan age of our literature we begin with a notice of these productions which constitute by much the most valuable part of it shakespeare's dramatic works william shakespeare born in fifteen sixty four is enumerated as one of the proprietors of the black friars theatre in fifteen eighty nine he is sneered at by robert green in fifteen ninety two in terms which seem to imply that he had already acquired a considerable reputation as a dramatist and a writer in blank verse though the satirist insinuates that he was enabled to make the show he did chiefly by the plunder of his predecessors and in fifteen ninety eight he is spoken of by a critic of the day as indisputably the greatest of english dramatists both for tragedy and comedy and as having already produced his two gentlemen of verona comedy of errors love's labours lost love's labours won generally supposed to be all's well that ends well midsummer night's dream merchant of venice richard the second richard the third henry the fourth king john titus andronicus and romeo and juliet there is no ground however for feeling assured and indeed it is rather improbable that we have here a complete catalogue of the plays written by shakespeare up to this date 
nor is the authority of so evidently loose a statement embodying it is to be supposed the mere report of the town sufficient even to establish absolutely the authenticity of every one of the plays enumerated it is very possible for example that mirrors may be mistaken in assigning titus andronicus to shakespeare and on the other hand he may be the author of pericles and may have already written that play and some others although mirrors does not mention them the only other direct or positive information we possess on this subject is that a history called titus andronicus presumed to be the play afterwards published as shakespeare's was entered for publication at stationers hall in fifteen ninety three that the second part of henry the sixth if it is by shakespeare in its original form of the first part of the contention betwixt the two famous houses of york and lancaster was published in fifteen ninety four the third part of henry the sixth if by shakespeare in its original form of the true tragedy of richard duke of york in fifteen ninety five his richard the second richard the third and romeo and juliet in fifteen ninety seven love's labours lost in the first part of henry the fourth in fifteen ninety eight the latter however having been entered at stationers hall the preceding year a corrected and augmented edition of romeo and juliet in fifteen ninety nine titus andronicus supposing it to be shakespeare's the second part of henry the fourth henry the fifth in its original form the midsummer night's dream much ado about nothing and the merchant of venice in sixteen hundred the last having been entered at stationers hall in fifteen ninety eight the merry wives of windsor in its original form in sixteen o two but entered at stationers hall the year before hamlet in sixteen o three entered likewise the year before a second edition of hamlet enlarged to almost as much again as it was according to the true and perfect copy in sixteen o four lear in sixteen o eight and troilus and cressida and pericles in sixteen o nine each being entered the preceding year othello not till sixteen twenty two six years after the author's death and all the other plays namely the two gentlemen of verona the winter's tale the comedy of errors king john all's well that ends well as you like it king henry the eighth measure for measure cymbeline macbeth the taming of the shrew julius caesar antony and cleopatra Coriolanus, timon of athens the tempest twelfth night the first part of henry the sixth if shakespeare had anything to do with that play and also the perfect editions of henry the fifth the merry wives of windsor and the second and third parts of henry the sixth not so far as is known till they appear along with those formerly printed in the first folio in sixteen twenty three such then is the sum of the treasure that shakespeare has left us but the revolution which his genius wrought upon our national drama is placed in the clearest light by comparing his earliest plays with the best which the language possessed before his time he has made all his predecessors obsolete while his merchant of venice and his midsummer night's dream and his romeo and juliet and his king john and his richard the second and his henry the fourth and his richard the third all certainly produced as we have seen before the year fifteen ninety eight are still the most universally familiar compositions in our literature no other dramatic work that had then been written is now popularly read or familiar to anybody except to a few professed investigators of the antiquities of our poetry where are now the best productions even of such writers as green and peel and marlowe and decker and marston and webster and thomas haywood and middleton they are to be found among our select collections of old plays publications intended rather for the mere preservation of the pieces contained in them than for their diffusion among a multitude of readers or if the entire works of a few of these elder dramatists have recently been collected and republished this has still been done only to meet the demand of a comparatively very small number of curious students anxious to possess and examine for themselves whatever relics are still recoverable of the old world of our literature 
popularly known and read the works of these writers never again will be there is no more prospect or probability of this than there is that the plays of shakespeare will ever lose their popularity among his countrymen in that sense everlasting oblivion is their portion as everlasting life is his in one form only have they any chance of again attracting some measure of the general attention namely in the form of such partial and very limited exhibition as lamb has given us an example of in his specimens and herein we see the first great difference between the plays of shakespeare and those of his predecessors and one of the most immediately conspicuous of the improvements which he introduced into dramatic writing he did not create our regular drama but he regenerated and wholly transformed it as if by breathing into it a new soul we possess no dramatic production anterior to his appearance that is at once a work of high genius and of anything like equably sustained power throughout very brilliant flights of poetry there are in many of the pieces of our earlier dramatists but the higher they soar in one scene the lower they generally seem to think it expedient to sink in the next their great efforts are made only by fits and starts for the most part it must be confessed that the best of them are either merely extravagant and absurd or do nothing but trifle or doze away over their task with the expenditure of hardly any kind of faculty at all this may have arisen in part from their own want of judgment or want of painstaking in part from the demands of a very rude condition of the popular taste but the effect is to invest all that they have bequeathed to us with an air of barbarism and to tempt us to take their finest displays of successful daring for mere capricious inspirations resembling the sudden impulses of fury by which the listless and indolent man of the woods will sometimes be roused for the instant from his habitual laziness and passiveness to an exhibition of superhuman strength and activity from this savage or savage-looking state our drama was first redeemed by shakespeare even milton has spoken of his wood notes wild and thompson more unceremoniously has baptized him wild shakespeare as if a sort of half insane irregularity of genius were the quality that chiefly distinguished him from other great writers if he be a wild writer it is in comparison with some dramatists and poets of succeeding times who it must be admitted are sufficiently tame compared with the dramatists of his own age and of the age immediately preceding with the general throng of the writers from among whom he emerged and the coruscations of whose feebler and more desultory genius he has made pale he is distinguished from them by nothing which is more visible at the first glance than by the superior regularity and elaboration that mark his productions marlowe and green and kidd may be called wild and wayward and careless but the epithets are inapplicable to shakespeare by whom in truth it was that the rudeness of our early drama was first refined and a spirit of high art put into it which gave it order and symmetry as well as elevation it was the union of the most consummate judgment with the highest creative power that made shakespeare the miracle that he was if indeed we ought not rather to say that such an endowment as his of the poetical faculty necessarily implied the clearest and truest discernment as well as the utmost productive energy even as the most intense heat must illuminate as well as warm but undoubtedly his dramas are distinguished from those of his predecessors by much more than merely this superiority in the general principles upon which they are constructed such rare passages of exquisite poetry and scenes of sublimity or true passion as sometimes brighten the dreary waste of their productions are equalled or excelled in almost every page of his the highest heaven of invention to which they ascend only in far distant flights and where their strength of pinion never sustains them long is the familiar home of his genius other qualities again which charm us in his plays are nearly unknown in theirs he first informed our drama with true wit and humour of boisterous uproarious blackguard 
merriment and buffoonery there is no want in our earlier dramatists nor of mere jibing and jeering and vulgar personal satire but of true airy wit there is little or none in the comedies of shakespeare the wit plays and dazzles like dancing light this seems to have been the excellence indeed for which he was most admired by his contemporaries for quickness and felicity of repartee they placed him above all other playwriters but his humour was still more his own than his wit in that rich but delicate and subtle spirit of drollery moistening and softening whatever it touches like a gentle oil and penetrating through all enfoldings and rigorous encrustments into the kernel of the ludicrous that is in everything which mainly created malvolio and shallow and slender and dogberry and virgus and bottom and lancelot and lance and costard and touchstone and a score of other clowns fools and simpletons and which gloriously overflowing in falstaff makes his wit exhilarate like wine shakespeare has had almost as few successes as he had predecessors and in these and all his other delineations he has like every other great poet or artist not merely observed and described but as we have said created or invented it is often laid down that the drama should be a faithful picture or representation of real life or if this doctrine be given up in regard to the tragic or more impassioned drama because even kings and queens and the actual world never do declaim in the pomp of blank verses they do on the stage till it is insisted that in comedy no character is admissible that is not a transcript a little embellished perhaps but still substantially a transcript from some genuine flesh-and-blood original but shakespeare has shown that it belongs to such an imagination as is to create in comedy as well as in tragedy or in poetry of any other kind most of the characters that have just been mentioned are as truly the mere creations of the poet's brain as are ariel or caliban or the witches in macbeth if any modern critic will have it that shakespeare must have actually seen malvolio and lance and touchstone before he could or at least would have drawn them we would ask the said critic if he himself has ever seen such characters in real life and if he acknowledge as he needs must then he never has we would then put it to him to tell us why the contemporaries of the great dramatist might not have enjoyed them in his plays without ever having seen them elsewhere just as we do or in other words why such delineations might not have perfectly fulfilled their dramatic purpose then as well as now when they certainly do not represent anything that is to be seen upon earth any more than do don quixote and sancho panza there might have been professional clowns and fools in the age of shakespeare such as are no longer extant but at no time did there ever actually exist such fools and clowns as his these and other similar personages of the shakespearean drama are as much mere poetical phantasmata as are the creations of the kindred humour of cervantes are they the less amusing or interesting however on that account do we the less sympathize with them nay do we feel that they are the less naturally drawn that they have for us less of a truth in life than the most faithful copies from the men and women of the real world but in the region of reality too there is no other drama so rich as that of shakespeare he has exhausted the old world of our actual experience as well as imagined for us new worlds of his own what other anatomist of the human heart has searched its hidden core and laid bare all the strength and weakness of our mysterious nature as he has done in the gushing tenderness of juliet and the fine frenzy of the discrowned lear and the sublime melancholy of hamlet and the wrath of the perplexed and tempest-torn othello and the eloquent misanthropy of timon and the fixed hate of shylock what other poetry has given shape to anything half so terrific as lady macbeth or so winning as rosalind or so full of gentlest womanhood as desdemona in what other drama do we behold so living a humanity as in his who has given us a scene either so crowded with diversities of character or so stirred with the heat and hurry of actual existence the men and the manners of all countries and of all ages are there 
the lovers and warriors the priests and prophetesses of the old heroic and kingly times of greece the athenians of the days of pericles and alcibiades the proud patricians and turbulent criminality of the earliest period of republican rome caesar and brutus and cassius and antony and cleopatra and the other splendid figures of that later roman scene the kings and queens and princes and courtiers of barbaric denmark and roman britain and britain before the romans those of scotland in the time of the english heptarchy those of england and france at the era of magna carta all ranks of the people of almost every reign of our subsequent history from the end of the fourteenth to the middle of the sixteenth century not to speak of venice and verona and mantua and padua and illyria and navarre and the forest of arden and all the other towns and lands which he has peopled for us with their most real inhabitants nor even in his plays is shakespeare merely a dramatist apart altogether from his dramatic power he is the greatest poet that ever lived his sympathy is the most universal his imagination the most plastic his diction the most expressive ever given to any writer his poetry has in itself the power and varied excellences of all other poetry while in grandeur and beauty and passion and sweetest music and all the other higher gifts of song he may be ranked with the greatest with spencer and chaucer and milton and dante and homer he is at the same time more nervous than dryden and more sententious than pope and more sparkling of, of more abounding conceit when he chooses than dunn or cowley or butler in whose handling was language ever such a flame of fire as it is in his his wonderful potency in the use of this instrument would alone set him above all other writers language has been called the costume of thought it is such a costume as leaves are to the tree or blossoms to the flower and grows out of what it adorns every great and original writer accordingly has distinguished and as it were individualized himself as much by his diction as by even the sentiment which it embodies and the invention of such a distinguishing style is one of the most unequivocal evidences of genius but shakespeare has invented twenty styles he has a style for every one of his great characters by which that character is distinguished from every other as much as pope is distinguished by his style from dryden or milton or from spencer yet all the while it is he himself with his own peculiar accent that we hear in every one of them the style or manner of expression that is to say and if the manner of expression then also the manner of thinking of which the expression is always the product is at once both that which belongs to the particular character and that which is equally natural to the poet the conceiver and creator of the character this double individuality or combination of two individualities is inherent of necessity in all dramatic writing it is what distinguishes the imaginative here from the literal the artistic from the real a scene of a play from a police report no more in this than in any other kind of literature properly so-called can we dispense with that infusion of the mind from which the work has proceeded of something belonging to that mind and to no other which is the very life or constituent principle of all art the one thing that makes the difference between a creation and a copy between the poetical and the mechanical End of section 49